You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for April 2013. Today's episode is titled, Work and the Revealing of Our Destiny. Why did God create people? Looking at the motivation of the average worker, one might conclude that God created people for the purpose of retirement. After all, this is what most people seem to focus on and work for. But if your view of reality is bigger than retirement, how might you answer this question? Work is a primary venue for people to fulfill their purpose in life consistent with the meta-narrative. Organizations are vehicles that provide workers a context in which to perform their work. Both people and organizations find their purposes and destinies by fulfilling their roles in the meta-narrative. Secondarily, work provides opportunities to bless others with employment, provision, and wealth accumulation. In addition, work is a venue for serving others and challenges us to think about the greater good of society. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Work and the Revealing of Our Destiny. The topic uh, I've been assigned is work and the revealing of our destiny. Now, if you're like me, um, you've grown up or been around Christianity for a while, and you developed an idea of what it was like based on that experience. Um, And my sense about what Christianity was about was largely it happened outside the context of work. I didn't really have a paradigm, didn't have an example, didn't have a model of anyone really walking like Christ walked in their work. Sometimes I wonder what it looked like for Christ to be a carpenter. You ever thought about that? Um, And as I pondered this and I've read scripture, I found situations where, you know, it looked like that his work as a carpenter was extremely important. For example, remember the time that he called his disciples? Or one of the occasions where he called his disciples. It's early in the morning, and they're out at the lake. And Jesus is talking to a crowd. Now, the fishermen had just come in from fishing all night, and they have caught nothing. Not been a good day at the the office. Anybody had a day like that where worked hard all day, and it didn't work today? Didn't make any money today? So they had economically not prospered that night. So they're coming in from the from uh, from fishing, and I, I have to presume this has got to be around daybreak. That's when the fishermen would come in. So they're coming in, and they're unloading their nets and cleaning their nets, and Jesus is there talking to a crowd. Now, how many of you think you could get a crowd at dawn at some lake around here? Yeah. <laughs> that, you think about that. You say, well, this is really strange. What's going on here? So he's having this conversation with him, and he tells the fisherman, he says, may I borrow your boat? You know, the crowd's kind of pushing me a little bit here. I need to kind of get away from him, have a little distance here. So I'm going to go sit in the boat and talk to him from the boat. And I said, sure. So he gets in the boat, gets out there and talks to him a while. Finally, he finishes, he dismisses the crowd, and then he turns his attention to these fishermen, who apparently are still cleaning their nets. And he says, hey, set out for a catch. And they look at him. I, I just imagine this conversation. I mean, we are professional fishermen. We've just fished all night, and it's been nada, nothing. And we are in the shallows here. The fish aren't here. You are a crazy carpenter. You want us to go fishing now in the shallows? You're nuts. But they don't say that. I'm sure that went through their minds. 
And they said, because the shoemaster will do it. So they set out, throw their nets over that they just cleaned. How would you like to do that? Have just cleaned your tools, your utensils, and, and now you're going out there and you say, oh, now i got to go clean them again because he wants us to go out there and do this. And so they throw it in there, and now they can't hardly drag the net in. It's so full of fish. Now, you remember what Peter did? He drops on his knees and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinner. Now, have you ever thought about that as the correct way to respond to a windfall prophet? <laughs> ever thought about that? Anybody had a windfall prophet? Anybody ever had that? Some unexpected thing, and all of a sudden there is, a, there is all, all this, these assets that you didn't know that were going to be there. They're there. And how did you respond? Did you drop on your knees and say, Depart from me, I'm a sinner? Mm, probably didn't. <laughs> probably didn't. That's what Peter did. And then the, di the dialogue goes on with Jesus saying, Okay, I want to now make you fishermen on a different plane. I want to make you fishers of men. And Scripture says they left everything. Yeah. Everything. They walked out of their businesses. Now think about this. Would you and I do that? <clears throat> well, the first thing we have to do is we have to pray about it, don't wouldn't we? <laughs> I didn't say anything about praying about it. Next thing, we, we have to go talk to our spouses about it. Okay? Didn't do that. Now please understand, those are good things. Yeah. I'm not denigrating these in any way. I'm just pointing out what happened to illustrate something to you. They left all of their assets. They left their father who was part of their business as well. Why would they do that? How is it they were so clear that when that call came that there was no question we were going to obey? Well, may I submit to you a theory? I'm a scientist. I'm used to making, developing theories and testing theories. So my theory is this. They had actually had a lot of experience with Jesus prior to that day. Now, how would fishermen have had experience with a carpenter? Well, turns out that Jesus, his carpenter shop was about 30 miles away from the lake, the Sea of Galilee there. I would say it's very likely that he built their boats or repaired their boats. In some way, he's a service provider for them. They were probably customers, clients of his. And through that work, they saw something, something incredible they had never seen anywhere else. It was so powerful that when that call came, there was nothing they could do but say yes. I think it's a picture of the power of walking in the Spirit at work. Now, has anybody ever seen that? No, I haven't either. I grew up as a Baptist, and I didn't see anything like that. Not, no vision for that. I never even heard of anything like that. You know, when you, when you start looking at the scripture, you realize, wow, there is a depth of understanding and truth and wisdom here that we know just so little about. So I think that's what Dennis was challenging us in that first session. He was challenging us to let go of our paradigms and start really looking at what scripture says. Paying attention to what scripture says. Do you believe Jesus is Lord of all? Yes. Now, first of all, everybody will agree with that. That he's the Lord of the workplace. Right. 
Now, how many of you work? How many of you work? Now, everybody ought to have their hand up. Because everybody works. You work either in the home or outside the home. That's the only options. Some of you work in the home. Some of you work outside. Yes, yes. You may work both places. That's absolutely, In fact, we all work both places, really. It's just a matter of how, where your time is allocated. That's all. But we all work. Okay, so when you, when you get that picture that work is fundamentally how God's universe has been made to work, to operate, the question is, why would he do it that way? I mean, he created the universe. Why would he choose to do it that way? Well, he clearly has a purpose for work. And he is the Lord of the workplace. So now I've got to begin to see work as he sees it. I've got to begin to see it from his design, his intent. And that's a totally different way of viewing reality. So would you say it's possible that God could use the workplace to reveal to us something about his plan and purpose for our lives? Would you agree with that? Sure. That you could see something of the destiny of God that he's put into you through your work. See, I didn't see or understand any of this growing up. In fact, I didn't even start wrestling with this until I was about, see, when did I meet you, Dennis? 22 years ago. I was in my early 40s when I met Dennis. By the way, by the time I met Dennis, I had been fairly strongly trained theologically by some very capable, able theologians. So when he walks in, you know, with this new ideas, it was like, what planet are you from? I mean, I've been sitting under some godly men, and I've never heard anything like this. So one of the first things that I did when I, when I met Dennis is I spent a lot of time searching Scripture, looking to see if what he said was really in the Word. I was trying to be a good Berean. You know what good Bereans are? I was trying to be a good Berean. I remember going to conferences, and I would, I would literally leave the meeting, go to my hotel room, and open up the Scripture. I would sit in that bed and look, at, look up text. Say, okay, I, here's my notes. Here's what I heard him say. Is that here? Is that really there? I remember looking for up a text one time for God pays for what he orders. That's one of the principles he teaches. So I was looking for that, and lo and behold, I found one. I thought, wow, I'd never seen that before. And how many times have I read that text and I had not seen that? And so I began to see that the Holy Spirit was giving, through Dennis, a level of understanding that even the theologians who had trained me did not have. And that's the way God works. He works through different people. They are portals to convey his revelation to us. Just like he wants to use you as a portal to work through to accomplish his purpose through you. So that's half my time, and that was just the introduction. <laughs> so we will speed it up here. I'm sorry, I have a PowerPoint here, but I, I don't have a way to show it to you, so... I'm going to, you know, you know, you know you, they, we got nice tools today. You know, I've got my PowerPoint on my iPad and my iPhone, and I control it from my iPhone. Do you know that? You can do that? That's pretty slick. And I, I can even see, read my notes, which I don't pay attention to my notes. <laughs> I've been around Dennis too long. You know, he, he does all these notes. He never pays any attention to his notes. All right. So the title of, of the message that I've been assigned here is Work in the Revealing of Our Destiny. Well, first of all, when you start talking about destiny, you have to assume things here about the reality of destiny. Uh, most people believe in a general destiny. 
And that is that your general destiny is to know Christ and to serve him. Most of you agree with that? Now, the challenge is, do you believe in a personal destiny, an individual destiny? Uh, some of my associates were engaged in a dialogue here over the last few days, and one of them had written a note, a quote from Oswald Chambers. And please understand that I, I'm, I respect Oswald Chambers, but Oswald Chambers is like any human being. He has a certain perspective he sees and things he doesn't see, and that's true of all of us. We'll have things we see and things we don't see. And he, there's a quote that was, uh, was cited in one of the dialogues with my associates. And the quote was this. The call of God is not a call to serve him in any particular way. And I read that and I said, wait a minute. That is not fit scripture. Right. But scripture says that I've been specifically created to play a part in God's plan. So there is, here's where a godly man just missed something in Scripture. He believed in the general destiny, the call to come to Christ and to grow and mature in Christ and to serve Christ, but he didn't see this personal destiny, which is that God made you for a reason. Right. Now, if we, could, uh, uh, if we could be scientific, which that's, that's always my default is to be scientific, is to measure things, um, and we could put a meter on you and measure how, to what degree do you really believe God has a purpose for you? What would the meter say? I think for many of us, the meter might say, you know, sort of believe that, kind of low, on a scale of 1 to 10, maybe you're a 2 or 3. For others, maybe it's a 5 or 6. Probably very few here are fully convinced of that, where the meter would be pegging at 10. Now, why is that? Why is it that we would... And this is my theory, obviously. Some of you are saying, oh, I, I'm a 10. Well, maybe you are. But you're an exception in my experience. My experience is that most people, when I've had a chance to really work with them and they're transparent with me, then I discover that they really don't have a very high view of themselves as part of God's plan and purpose. And I think that is a tool of the enemy to keep us distracted and to keep us off course and to block us from what God has created us to do. So... I want to challenge you to really ask God to give you faith to trust that he has a purpose and a plan for you, specifically for you. And I'll come back to this in a few minutes, and we'll look at that text in Ephesians that Dennis referred to. But first I want to just point out something, some things that really block us from getting to that place. Jesus called this the yeast of the Pharisees. Uh, and one, on one of his occasions, when he was uh, speaking to his disciples, and by the way, if you, if you read the gospel records, you'll see Jesus' pattern for how he lived. He didn't live like we lived. We live with the idea of making big splashes and having big events and touching a lot of people. Jesus was focused on his disciples. He did touch other people, but that was not his focus. His focus was his disciples. So on this occasion, he's speaking to his disciples, and there are people gathered around them. So apparently it's some kind of public setting. And so here he's starting out. It says, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. Now, most of us would say, Wait a minute, Jesus, you had this opportunity. Look at the masses. Look at the crowds. 
Jesus never gets distracted with the crowds. He's focused on these disciples. First thing he tells them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In other words, they're pretenders, they're actors. They say one thing and live another way. So what are some examples of this yeast today? As we think about this yeast, this yeast are things that infect us and block us from living with integrity. Because the yeast tries us to get us to live like the Pharisees lived, which is hypocritical. Now we all, we all can do this pretty easily. It doesn't take much effort for us to be hypocrites. Anybody notice that? It's pretty simple. And which, uh, when you recognize that, you're a little slower to throw rocks at the people that you see that have moral failures, which seems to be very prominent in our culture. So we have yeast today, and it's blocking us from walking with God at the level we want to because we wind up in hypocritical states. So what are some of these yeast, some of the examples of the yeast today? Well, let me just give you some examples. One of them is deism. Now, this is not in your notes. I didn't put, I've got other things in here. If you can see my PowerPoint, that are not in your notes. You know, I had to get these notes done before I left for Asia, so I was hurrying, and there's actually some mistakes which I apologize for. So, and it's not—they're not totally complete. Uh, those of you that know me know, as a scientist, you know you never finish. Did you know that you never finish? I mean, I got up this morning at five o'clock and worked on these notes because I was working to improve them and make them better. Well, that's how scientists think. There's always a way to make it better. Always way to improve on it. So my PowerPoint's actually more further along than the notes you have. So deism is one of the points here that you don't have in your notes. Deism assumes that God, God is totally disconnected from his universe. He created it, and then he walked away from it. Now, how many of you are deists? If you're a deist, raise your hand. May I suggest to you that you're all deists? It's just a matter of the degree to which you're deistic. We're all deistic. Nobody wants to be a deist. Nobody wants to admit it. But the reality is, you start looking at how you live your lives, you will find that there are many areas of your life where you are living disconnected from God. And you think he's not engaged. He doesn't know. He doesn't care. This is not important enough for him to worry with. I'm left to myself. Those are the kinds of things you begin to think. And we all think them. Because we all get in tough scrapes. And we wonder, are, God, are you there? Do you realize what's happening to me? This is really pretty bad. You know, but he's always there. So deism is in all of us. And the more that we can recognize it and eradicate it. And how do you eradicate deism? By recognizing he's there. That's the truth. It's the whole process of thought stopping. You've got a bad process going on in your mind, assuming things about God that are not true. You've got to stop that and replace it with truth. Another area of the uh, example of the yeast of the Pharisees today is the theory of evolution. The theory of evolution is a theory that's been developed by atheists to support atheism. Prior to the development of the, of the theory of evolution, atheists were intellectually unsatisfied. That is, they could not explain creation without a God. And so how could they be atheists then? But once they had the theory of evolution, now they can explain this universe without God, and now they're intellectually satisfied to quote one of their leading proponents. So this is, a way, this is the use of the Pharisees that distract us. We have believing, believing people, people that profess Christ, 
they get caught up into the evolutionary theory and all the implications of this. Another example, this is dualism, which Dennis mentioned. Dualism is kind of a, a, a variation of deism. Dualism is where we, have, we recognize that God's engaged, but only in certain ways. He's only engaged with you personally, or maybe your family and your church. But other than that, he's not engaged in public policy, and he's not engaged at work. And so that's another way that the yeast of the Pharisees is tempting us to buy into lies and deception, which lead us down the wrong road. And finally, the postmodern culture. <clears throat> I assume all of you are worldview students. Are all worldview students in here? Anybody a worldview student in here? Do you know what a worldview is? Okay, a few of you. Okay. Are you awake? All right. Just want to be sure. Well, postmodernism is, is probably a good way to characterize our culture. There are many facets of postmodernism. One of the facets is postmodernism denies a meta-narrative. There is no meta-narrative. There is no overarching story. There is no overarching plan and purpose that God is executing in time. And so we're just all here uh, left to ourselves to develop our own sense of reality and to live any way we want to live. Now, most of us, frankly, we think kind of postmodern, but we may not want to admit it. For example, when we, uh, how, when we measure things, we come up to somebody and say, hey, how are you doing? You know, and if they say, doing well, then we think, okay, everything's pretty cool in their life, don't we? Isn't that what we think? Yeah, well, what's, what's reality? The reality is that God is in the transform you, transforming you into the image of his son. So when things are going well, how much transformation is happening? Probably not a lot. When the heat is on is when the transformation is happening. And so that's when things are really well. And we think those are times when things are bad. Okay, so now do you realize there's some postmodernism in you? Yes, sir. Does that help you? Yeah. It's just a simple example. I mean, it, it, if you really get tuned in to what postmodern said, postmodernism says, you'll begin to see it all over the culture, including in your Christian congregation, wherever it is. In fact, you'll see it in your Christian music. Okay? How many of you enjoy music? Okay, well, just, just a simple little point. One of the premises of postmodernism is called human potency. Who knows what human potency is? Uh, well, you know, because I trained you. And you know, because I trained you. Okay? So, who's not been trained by me that knows what that is? You know what it is? What is it? You have the ability to change your future. Yes. Human potency is all about human power. It's the assumption that you can do whatever you want to do. Okay? So, when you, when you believe in human potency, well, then you can... You know, you can make all kinds of declarations. So, the way this pops up in our music is all these I statements. You pay attention to the music today. There's a lot of music with I statements. I will worship you. I will serve you. I will glorify you. I will honor you. I will walk with you. All these different I statements. Anytime you see a song full of I statements, may encourage you just to stop. Okay, here's what I do. This is what I do. First of all, I don't, don't get critical. Do not get critical. That's not the point. The point is now to see it properly. So here's what I do. I say, Lord, give me the grace to be your servant. Give me the grace to walk with you. Give me the grace to be faithful. So I try. I, I, I preface those I statements with, Lord, I can't do that. 
I am not powerful enough without you to do that. I have to have you to be able to do this. So I just, just reinterpret it biblically, and it's okay. Now, hopefully, some of our songwriters will recognize this and begin to write maybe a little more biblical lyrics. And so we won't have to translate the lyrics so much when we sing them. So that's, that's just an example. It's popping up everywhere. Postmodernism is insidious, and it is a huge yeast of the Pharisees, and it blocks us from seeing the destiny and purpose of God in our lives. So, postmodernism says there's no meta-narrative. Scripture says there is a meta-narrative. So let me just read you a text real quickly. Isaiah 46, 9-11. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. It's kind of like he says that, and he says, okay, any questions? <laughs> Is it, we clear on this. He says, I make known the end from the beginning, which means I start things, I end things. Right. I define when you're born, I define when you die. I define when organizations start, I define when organizations stop. By the, you know, by the way, you know God is that into that level of detail? Okay, that's where he lives. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. Now he gets very specific. Now you might say, oh, that's been general. Now he's going to get very specific. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. You know, I mentioned to you, I've been in Asia here over the last few weeks. In fact, a week ago, I was doing a financial seminar in Hong Kong. So... It's a quick transition to be here today, okay? But <clears throat> over in, over in, um, in Asia, they're tra they've, in, they've translated Dennis's book into Chinese, and they're translating mine into Chinese, and they're also working on some uh, teaching. So in my Strategic Life Alignment Seminar, I focus a lot on this particular text, and when they got to this verse here where it says, I summon a bird of prey, they have no Chinese character to represent that. <coughs> So they have not figured out how to translate this into Chinese. Well, by the grace of God, you understand a bird of prey. It is one bird. It's not a flock. It's not a gaggle. It's not a group. It's a bird. And then it says, from a far off land, a man. Not a bunch of men, not an army. He says, one man to fulfill my purpose. Now, if he's that specific individually... Is he a God who's in control of his universe? Amen. A God who's executing a plan? He says, what I have said, I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. I will execute my plan. So we have this meta-narrative, this story that's going on over time that God is executing, and it's very personal and very individual. Now, what's this story all about? Well, the story is all about Christ. Christ is the focal point of human history. Colossians 1, 15-17. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things are created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. You see, He is the source of all. He's the sustainer of all. He's the purpose, the end of all. 
He's the reason for all. He's the preeminent over all. But this is what the meta narrative is all about. Now, here's the challenge. We all know that. That was not a new text for probably most of us. Probably many of you have taught that text. Some of you may have preached great sermons from that text. And it's a wonderful text to preach from. The, the challenge is to bring that, bring that text into reality in our lives and see now how we live in light of that text. Can you connect what God wants to do in and through you to that meta narrative? Can you make that connection? Can you see it? You see, that's the challenge, and that's what's difficult for all of us. Now, let me just remind you again from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that this is indeed the reality for all of us, that we all have a specific plan and purpose that we're to fulfill in God's meta narrative. So look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And we all are familiar with this verse. Again, I'm not telling you anything new here. This is, this is a reminder. And how many of you are in education? Who's in education here? Anybody? Okay. You, in education, how do people learn? Repetition. Repetition. So we're going to go through something you already know, and maybe we'll give you a little different cut on it that will make it go deeper this time. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's very clear. If you know Jesus Christ, you have been given the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. You did nothing to earn it. Nothing. None of us here. We know Christ. We have been given the gift of eternal life in Christ. Then verse 10 says, for, as R.C. Pro says, when you see the word for, you have to ask yourself, what is it there for? Kind of a cute way to say it. But there's a purpose why. He's, he's saying here, there is a reason why God has saved you. You see, this, he, he wants to make it clear. Most of us think, this is what I thought growing up, I got saved to go to heaven. I got saved so I wouldn't go to hell. I got saved so I wouldn't wind up eternally punished. I got saved so I would enjoy eternal life. That's kind of what I thought. Well, here's what Paul says. For we are God's handiwork. Paul, what are you talking about? We're talking about this wonderful presentation of the gospel. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And what's this got to be with what's this got to do with me being a handiwork? Well, he goes on, he says, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. What is he talking about here? Well, first of all, the very end there, if something's prepared in advance for us, that means there's what? A plan. There is a meta narrative. There's this overarching plan that God is executing in Christ, and we each have been saved to play a role in that plan. Okay? Yeah, I'm beginning to see this picture here. So God has specifically made me, created me in Christ Jesus to do good works. In the prior verses, he said that my works didn't count. And now he's saying my works do count. How does this, how does this work? Well, it's very simple, although it's very subtle. You see, there's nothing I can do, no work that I can do 
to make myself worthy of salvation. But my works now reveal that I have been saved. You see the subtleness of this? I don't work to get saved. I work because I am saved. Now if you don't get that, if you don't understand that, you're going to wind up in legalism and you'll get accused of legalism. You'll get very confused and other people get confused. So you've got to be clear. Verses 8 and 9 say, I can't work my way into God's presence. Verse 10 says that once I have come to Christ, now I'm going to live differently. I'm going to display my life, the reality of God in me, by these good works. And so these good works, by the way, this word work here is the very general word for work. It includes all kinds of work. Now if you're like me, I was very dualistic for a long time in interpreting that, thinking that had to do with, with good deeds. Like, you know, being a good, uh, a good deacon, a good usher, being a good Sunday school teacher, helping a lady across the street or whatever. You know, doing some good work, going on a mission trip. No, this refers to work. Any kind of work. It includes all of that I just mentioned, but it's much broader than that. Yes. What I do on Monday morning is part of my, of my work. And God wants that work to reflect Christ. So this is what, this is what destiny is all about, is to get a picture that we have been called by God to play a role in the meta-narrative. And so we begin to see what that role is in the work assignment that we have been given. By the way, who, who is it that puts you in your work assignment? Yeah, ultimately he did. Who made you know Peter a fisherman back 2,000 years ago? God set that up. That wasn't his choice. Whatever it is that you're doing today... It really isn't your choice. You may think it's your choice. It may kind of look like it's your choice. But ultimately, God set it up. He set up the circumstances. He gave you the skill, the ability, the resources, the opportunity, the relationships. Everything that was needed for you to do what you're doing, he set it up. That's the level of sovereignty that he works at. Now, I'm out of time. So I'm going to very quickly kind of pull this together here and try to just make a couple points to you. I wish I had time to go through the little chart on the meta-narrative, but I don't. Okay? Success in life is very simple. It's doing what God has created you to do. Doing what He has made you to do. Doing the works that He's ordained that you do. You have been saved to do those works. And so as you begin to get a picture of what success is, it'll change the way you think. Most of us think success is working so we can retire. Most people are working so they don't have to work. They view work as something they have to do. And they, want to, they work as hard as they can, as fast as they can, as short as they can, so they can retire as soon as they can. And basically what they're doing before they retire is they're doing man's will according to man, excuse me, man's will according to man's ways, usually other men's will, but once they retire they want to do their will according to their ways. Now, the way we're called to live is to do God's will according to God's ways at all times. Right. Furthermore, this whole idea of retirement, you know, you're hard-pressed to find it in Scripture, although you can find it. You know where you find it in Scripture? You can find it in the Old Testament refers to the priest. When the priest got to be 50 years old, they retired from actively doing the work of a priest, and you know what they became? Spiritual fathers. 
training younger priests. Now, was that retirement? No. It just was a different phase of life. A different work assignment. That's all it was. So, let me encourage you. Biblically, we need to begin to see retirement as God does, which is your life is a series of events that he's ordained and orchestrated for you to do. It's part of his destiny that he has for you that tie to his overarching story in his son. And your job is to successfully walk through those faithfully, one at a time. And by the way, there's plenty of time to do your assignment. Whatever you're assigned to do, there's plenty of time to do it. Your job is simply to be faithful to execute. Your destiny will be revealed as you work and do the work assignments that God has called you to do in the workplace, in the home, in the church, in the community. Wherever you assign, God's placed you there. He's got these work assignments as you do them, your destiny is unfolded. Your job is just to faithfully do what you've been called to do at each moment. And as he, as he promotes it, how does he promote? Based on faithfulness, not based on potential. See, we, we promote based on potential. He promotes based on faithfulness. So as you faithfully do what he's given you to do and you get promoted, then this leads you down the road of your life till the end of your life. And at the end of your life, which is the ultimate reality, it's not going to matter how many assets you have. What's going to matter at that point? Did you do what God created you to do? Did you play your role in the meta-narrative? The only thing I want to be able to say at the end of my life is what Jesus said in John 17, 4. When he said, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And then what do you want to hear? Well done. Well done. Is there anything better than that? Yeah. Well, that comes from walking out the reality of a biblical worldview of destiny and purpose and allowing God to use you to accomplish his purpose, be a portal for his grace into this creation.